at the weekend and plenty on the radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Warren and here's what you might have missed. You know that thing when you see somebody being picked on or you see somebody being abused or beaten up or anything and you say somebody should do something about that the somebody is probably you we started with um one of the well-known clinics here in i think it was 2018 even the bloods cost us about 500 euros um at the time which i've learned now you just go to the gp and pay 20. i was you know i came out of college yeah i had ambitions i had a great dad who always used to say to us as kids you know don't be a nurse be a doctor And we'll start here in the afternoon. And the brilliant Lenny Henry was talking to Ray Darcy about his new book, The Armour of Comedy and Crisps. Good afternoon, Ray. How are you today? Uh, I'm good. Uh, All the better talking to you. Um, That's very kind of you. Yeah, yeah, congratulations on the book. Um, Thanks. I've read it. Uh, Tundi is a hero. He likes crisps, the same as our Freya, who's just won a competition. (laughs) He loves crisps. (laughs) What's your favourite flavour? Uh, well, if you're going to get me into an advertising thing, money will have to change hands. <laughs> yes, and you've done, you've, you you were linked with a certain crisp for a long time, I suppose. Yes, I was, yeah. Um, but flavours don't pay people to endorse them. Flavours are out there, you know. Yes, flavours don't kill people, crisps do. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I love, uh, my favourite in, back in the day was, um, I like roast chicken flavour and I like, I still love ready salted. Right, just just the salt. Yeah, yeah, ready, ready salted, which is plain crisps, I guess. Yeah, or the roast, the roast chicken flavour. Okay, which my memory of it is that it was all chemicals, but oh my goodness, <laughs> it was delicious. Now, uh, the boy with wings. It's for nine to twelve year olds. Um, and why now? And why not before? Did you decide to write a children's book? Um, I don't know about you, but in the lockdown, it was quite a lonely time. And um, I have many days of sitting there in my pants, wondering what the hell I'm doing with my life, my career. Will I ever wear trousers again in public? <laughs> I just didn't know how the lockdown was going to work out, you know? Yeah. And I'm a writer. I did, I did a PhD in screenwriting. And I just thought, I'm going to start writing short stories and ideas down just to see what they come out like, how they come out. Um, I got a series called Rogues Gallery on BBC Radio 4, and that seemed to go down quite well. And when I got through character ideas and story ideas. I sent them off to my my manager and he sent them off to various literary editors. And there was a bidding war. I couldn't believe it. Um, And Pam McMillan said, we want to do some books with you. These ideas are great. What do you want to do next? And the first thing was this idea I had about this boy who's a bit like me when I was 12 and then I was bullied when I was 12. And, um, you know, I used to go to school and every day somebody would call me a horrible name. Somebody would want to fight with me. Somebody would, you know, roll around on the floor in the playground with me. And until the day I learned to use my sense of humour as a kind of a shield or a sword, I was going to get bullied every day. This guy was going to be on my back for the rest of my school career. But when I learned to crack jokes about how often he was pushing me over and did he want to go on a date and should I meet his parents? (laughs) Should you pick out a ring? You know, my mates, suddenly I had this gang of mates who said, Lenny's funny. He sh- you, sh- you should leave him alone. And they started to stick up for me. And in The Boy With Wings, not only does he have superpowers of a kind, but he also has this little gang of people that stick up for him. Yeah. And I guess that's a message for people. I guess that's a thing for, 
you know that thing when you see somebody being picked on or you see somebody being abused or beaten up or anything and you say somebody should do something about that the somebody is probably you and Ray asked Lenny about his very long career in performance. Listen, I was saying when I was telling people that you were on the show today that you've been doing what you're doing for like nearly five decades, 45, 46 years. Um, that's amazing. And and the breadth of what you've done is is amazing as well. So what what is it that keeps you going? And are you, are you constantly trying to reinvent yourself or what happens? Um, I think um, cake... Uh, alcohol, <laughs> right. alcohol's good. Although sometimes you can fall off, you know, a pe- a, a, you can fall off a bridge with alcohol. So it's best not to rely on that. Seriously, um, I love my job, and and that's what keeps me going, even if it's not going so well. Even when things are clearly where I've made a wrong choice, I love the execution of my job. Mm. I love collaborating with people who want the same thing. So if you're working with people who also want to do something cool, that's there's nothing better than that. If you're working with people who are on the same page as you, it's fantastic. It's the things where it can get a bit niggly are where people aren't on the same page as you, where they're a bit grumpy when they come to work in the morning and where they want to argue all the time. Um, I, don't, I don't want to be in a room full of yes people, but I do want to be in a room full of people who have the same intention as me which is to make something great happen. And, you know... You know, I, you know it, much it, it sounds like you're describing comic relief in that, because uh, that's been... Well, comic uh, relief is... Well, well, I get to work with my best friend on that. I get yeah. to work with Richard Curtis. Yeah. And Richard is wonderful. He's a comedy genius, but he also has a heart the size of a whale. And he cares about people. And I think when you're working with somebody like him, you want to please him too. You want him to be happy with the work too. So it's a two-way street. How many years is that going, Lenny? We started Comic Relief in 1988. Whoa. So we're, we're still going. 33 years. No. And we're going to, and apparently from next year, it's yeah. going to happen every year now, not every other year. Uh-huh. Uh, and so you've, you've expanded into Ireland. We did, we did, RTE does Comic Relief here. Um, yeah, yeah. We want, we want everybody to be involved in this because we think that just, just as in the way that we support Marcus Rashford and what he's doing for kids with reading, with literacy, with the food banks. Comic Relief has been supporting British charities since we began. So things to do with young people, things to do with education, things mm. to do with positive images of, of, of women, education, elderly abuse, um, substance abuse, all of these things we work with. Plus we work in other countries. We want to keep doing that and we can only do that with the help of our supporters who watch the shows and go, look at those Egypts. Mm. I'm going to put my hand in my pocket and help. You must come over. So really, you must come over for our comic relief one of the years because we're, really? we're in our infancy. We need an old G up from somebody like you. You know, stand on oh, the just, shoulders of giants and all that sort of let's thing. Have our, let's, have our, let's have our people talk to each other and see what can happen. The public so, are great and they have great ideas. And that's, that's how you raise over a, over a billion pounds. The public just have tons of ideas. Mm. It's the best thing. Mm. So keep going, I say. Uh, so uh, 2008 was a sort of a, a turn in the road for you in that you you acted seriously for the first time. You did Othello, Shakespeare's Othello. Um, uh, well, that was in 2009, sorry. 2010. Um, you did the radio thing first, sorry, in 2008. Oh, and yeah, then, yeah, I, yeah. Did a show in, I did a show in 2008 called... Um, 
where there's a will or something. And it was about me not quite getting on with Shakespeare. And I wanted to, in the way that I've done with The Boy With Wings, I wanted to jump in feet first and see what happens when I work with people who've been doing writing and working in Shakespeare for a long time. Mm. So I talked to Judy Dench and I talked to Adrian Lester and Patterson Joseph. And um, I talked to Sir Peter Hall and um, all of these people who have a vested interest in saying Shakespeare rules, get amongst it. And so they all said, you can't just slag Shakespeare off if you've never tried it. So you've got to have a go and see what you think. And honest to God, the minute I did the first couple of goes, and the first thing I did was I rehearsed the last scene of Othello in a basement at the BBC with a producer and um, a microphone and Barry Rutter, who's a brilliant stage director. And I found myself, for the first time, enjoying the process of understanding how Shakespeare works. And at the end of the session, which was about four hours, and you've got to bear in mind, I'd never really done four hours of work on you know, comedy. Comedy is just something I love to do, and I do it all the time. But I would never knowingly sit down in a room for four hours on a joke. But this, this session was the first time I'd spent four hours working on you know, two pages of dialogue. And at the end of it, A, I'd enjoyed it, and B, I said to Barry Rutter, do you think I could do this? And he said, yes, of course you can. When do you want to do it? And the next year, to end of 2009, beginning of 2010, I was playing Othello for the Northern Broadsides. And it was an extraordinary experience. I was really scared. But somehow, I came out the other end. I think I took 14 Nurofen um, before we did the premiere. That's OK, isn't it? <laughs> I don't think so. I'm not, I'm not a medical doctor, but I, I don't think well, so. <laughs> all I know is it's, what I remember is taking bows. Yeah, I don't remember anything about the It was an out-of-body experience. But it went really well, apparently. Yeah. Um, but what was great was the press came expecting a car crash, and that didn't, you know, yeah. comedian Shakespeare, ha, ha, ha. But it didn't work out like that. Lenny Henry on The Ray Darcy Show. And on Morning Ireland, supports for people dealing with fertility issues. Here's Anya Lawler. Ireland ranks a sorry 40th of 43 European countries when it comes to supports for people dealing with infertility. That's according to the European Fertility Atlas report. We're the only EU country not to fund IVF treatment. And many argue it's time that changed because couples can end up paying huge sums of money or having to travel abroad as they try to have a baby. We'll hear from Professor Mary Wingfield in a moment, but first, Here's what it meant for one couple. Tara Daly and her husband Ken from Rathcool in Dublin, six years ago, after a round of IVF failed here in Ireland, Tara and Ken travelled to Prague in the Czech Republic to try again in another clinic that was less expensive there. Tara Daly spoke to our reporter, Ashling Maloney. Um, we started with um, one of the well-known clinics here, in I think it was 2018. Even the bloods cost us about 500 euros um, at the time, which I've learned now. You just go to the GP and pay 20. You kind of learn a lot as you go through the process because you're very naive. To, I suppose you're very trusting in the doctors here and, and the system here, the healthcare system. I suppose because it's privatised here, there's a little bit less regulation around it. We then progressed on to IVF 
and within one month of IVF, I think we spent out €9,000 during that um, month. I didn't even speak to one doctor, but I paid out that amount and I was told this is going to be a success. I was kind of sold the dream and we had to look abroad. So I went over to Prague and I had one round of IVF and I I definitely felt like I got better care and a better standard. And it's funny, in Prague, the doctors over there, you actually get three rounds of IVF free. If you're a citizen there, all the extras that would have been add-ons here, we got everything in for two and a half thousand euros. So we were like, right, that's that's doable. We were then successful in October 2020 when I was pregnant um, with Teddy, who is now six months old. The hard part for us as well was, I suppose, leaving our country in the middle of a pandemic so we October 2020 are in literally in the height of it like I was laughing because I was like we're actually passing clinics on the way to the airport to get on a plane in the middle of a pandemic to have this done when we could actually have it done here but we just couldn't afford it you know and we were lucky because we were able to save that extra money like for a lot of people after paying out that 9,000 euro that's kind of the end of the road for them I think in total end to end both here and abroad it cost us 38,000 in total. Tara Daly talking to reporter Ashling Maloney. Then Anya Lawler spoke to Professor Mary Wingfield of the Marian Fertility Clinic. And I know the clinic, Professor Wingfield, it's a not-for-profit and it does charge. So can you explain how the IVF system works here in Ireland, typically, how much it costs, how many rounds and the chances of success? Good morning, Anya. Yes, I mean, we, t- we know that in, in Western countries like Ireland, one in six couples or people will have difficulty getting pregnant and up to 50% of those will need IVF treatment. So we have thousands of couples every year needing IVF treatment here in Ireland. On average, it costs, it's always difficult because again, one of the things that there's going to be a launch this afternoon and one of the things we don't have any registry here and we don't have any regulatory authority. So we have to rely on what what clinics have on their websites for information. Um, the standard cost for a basic IVF treatment is around €6,000 when you include collecting the eggs, making embryos and freezing embryos if you get good quality embryos. For that, the, the success rate really depends on the woman's age. If the woman is under 35, then you would hope to have at least a 50% chance of having a baby from that cycle. But if the woman is 40 years of age, then that woman or that couple will have about a 20% chance of getting a baby. So, that, you know, you're forking out six, seven thousand euros um, and there's a very high chance that it won't work. Now, some people can be very lucky and will do much better, you know, particularly if it's a young woman, depending on the cost of infertility. And, you know, we've had some couples who've had three babies from one treatment if they get frozen embryos and frozen embryo transfer cycle is around 14-1500 euros but then there are lots of added extras that if people need genetic testing or you know other investigations they're all added on and these are all medical interventions and IVF is recognized worldwide by the WHO by all the medical bodies as a medical treatment it's not a luxury somebody can be born with a really low sperm count so the only way he will ever get pregnant is with IVF Um, a woman can have severe endometriosis so the only way she will get pregnant is with endometriosis a young woman can have two ectopic pregnancies and lose her fallopian tubes and there's absolutely no way in this world she will get pregnant without IVF so it's a medical treatment that people need and 
as far as I can see, it's the only medical treatment not available on our public health system. And there's a report being launched today which is going to show that Ireland ranks 40, 4-0 out of 43 countries in terms of funding IVF and providing legislation and supports for people, education, information around IVF. We, as I said, we don't have a registry. We don't have any help for people. All right. So, so just on that, because there is a commitment in the programme for government uh, to publicly fund care for fertility treatment, uh, and there's also legislation in the pipeline. So where are we on the, both of those and what are the timelines? So with all due respect, this has been talked about in Ireland for the last for over 20 years now. I was on the Commission on Assisted Human Reproduction, which was the first one to look at legislation in this area. And that commission was appointed by the Minister for Health then, who was Micheál Martin, and it reported in 2005. Now that's, what, 16, 17 years ago. And we still don't have legislation. And then successive ministers since then have all promised public funding for IVF and again we don't have it. Two million euros was, was designated in 2019 to develop um, fertility services and that has been sent, spent on setting up fertility hubs. Now these are excellent and they're something we definitely need but the fertility hubs are based around the country, there will be six of them, um, but their main remit is to investigate, perform investigations and tests and we know that once those tests are done over 50% of the people attending those hubs will need IVF and there's absolutely no provision for IVF. So it does concern me a little bit that we will have these hubs and people will spend time having their investigations. They may end up getting treatments that are not very effective, such as Clomid or other ovulation drugs that if a woman is ovulating herself, they are of absolutely no benefit. And I'm worried that some people will get stuck in these hubs and not be able to move on to the treatment they really need, which is IVF. So the hubs are excellent, they're a start, but we really need to move on in terms of funding the actual treatments that people need. Professor Mary Wingfield from Morning Ireland with Anya Lawler. And on the Ryan Tuberty show, the speeches that were never delivered. Um, I played the clip uh, yesterday of Hillary Clinton's acceptance speech. In the event of her winning the presidency, she had a speech written and she delivered it and she it was very very emotional she cried during it as she remembered her family history and it was loaded but there's a piece today uh, about how uh, there were many speeches often written that were never delivered in history and this guy Archie Bland goes through a heap of them one of them was written in 1983 uh, for the Queen Queen Elizabeth II and the speech is um, for her to deliver because nuclear war has just broken out. Imagine, I got quite, quite freaked out by this, that they said, you know, Your Majesty, uh, this is the speech you need to rehearse in the event of nuclear war breaking out. Um, so just go through the lines. And, and the speech is here. She says uh, she, she would have addressed, obviously, the British people. Uh, that the horrors of war, she, she would have said, could not have seemed more remote as my family and I shared our Christmas joy with the growing family of the Commonwealth. Now this madness of war is once more spreading through the world and our brave country must again prepare itself to survive against great odds. It's kind of unnerving, isn't it? And eerie to read that. Another speech was, uh, Richard Nixon was, they wrote a speech, William, William Sapphire wrote a speech for, for Richard Nixon in the event of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin being marooned on the moon and, and, and being left there. They, they land on the moon, but they can't get, get back. What do you do? And here's the speech. He says, 
Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery, but they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. I was blown away by this this morning, I really was. Uh, Other speeches, uh, maybe not quite as important, but uh, Sarah Palin's victory speech was written as well in uh, 2008. It will be an honour, she would have said, of a lifetime to work with John McCain as Vice President of the United States. And I pledge to govern with integrity and goodwill and clear conviction and a servant's heart. And then the other most important one, actually it chimes nicely with my TV viewing this week, which is Band of Brothers, which I went back to and I'm absolutely loving. And this was the speech that uh, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, well, of course, he became president, but he would have been the commander of the Allied forces, uh, would have made in the event of defeat on D-Day. That that, that just didn't work out. The landings were a disaster. Uh, The Germans prevailed and he would have given this speech. It was a handwritten speech. It's now in the Eisenhower Library. uh, library. And he would have said, uh, our landings in the Cherbourg Harve area have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold and have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and place was based upon the best information available. The troops, the air and the navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. Amazing. What a dignified response to what would have been an, an, an extraordinary failure. But, um, wow, they don't make them like that anymore, do they? Anyway, that, that was just a, a fascinating... Didn't Robert Harris write it? Fatherland was his uh, intriguing prospect of, of Hitler winning the war and uh, what would happen after that. But anyway, that's one of those great what-ifs. What and then later, Ryan played a clip of JFK's voice. That uh, clip we have now of somebody was asking about the voice of John F. Kennedy had never been heard giving the speech he was due to deliver on the day he was assassinated. And of course he didn't deliver the speech, but they've managed to recreate the speech. They, they were able to put uh, reproduce all 2,590 words from the 20-minute speech at this company, Sarah Proc. Uh, they used audio and text from 831 of his speeches to recreate his words from that day and uh, this is this, the speech he never made. This is technology at its wildest. In a world of complex and continuing problems, in a world full of frustrations and irritations, American leadership must be guided by the lights of learning and reason, or else those who confuse rhetoric with reality and the plausible with the possible will gain the popular ascendance with their seemingly swift and simple solutions to every world problem. Excellent. That's not perfect, but it's fascinating. There's no doubt about that. The speech Kennedy was meant to deliver the day he was assassinated. Amazing. Gosh, history and technology that's changing everything. From the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, the overwhelming event of cooking the Christmas dinner with home economist Agnes Boucher-Hayes. Agnes, where do you stand on this? You know, get over it, guys. It's just a big roast. Um, good morning, Claire. Yeah, technically it is just a big roast. But the question I would ask is when was the last time you cooked a roast that large with all of the various components that are in the meal? 
Um, so really, it does need to be planned for. And that would be the biggest thing that I would say to anybody. Yes, th- like people minding the turkey. I always enjoy that um, because the oven does roast the turkey. But there are other things going on. There is entertaining. It's a big dinner party in the middle of the day with a lot of pressure that has been built up to for weeks. So people yeah. do need to, 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 to realise that and maybe practice some of their dishes. Yeah, I, I, I agree because if you go into it thinking that it's just a big Sunday dinner, you're at risk of it all going wrong because you might just leave yourself uh, open on the planning side. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, when you're, if, if you were having friends over for dinner and having a dinner party, you would plan. You'd be thinking about what you're going to cook, how you're going to cook it, what way you're going to time it. It is exactly the same for the Christmas lunch and it's a dinner party. It might be with family, but it's still a dinner party. And it needs to be approached with a level of planning that is actually, you know, it needs to be precise. So you need to figure out who's coming, when they're coming, um, what are they bringing, if they're bringing something, how will this fit into your menu? You plan your food, you plan your schedule. I know it sounds really, um, it sounds very boring, but it will get you through the day. It'll get you through that meal. And how detailed do you think we need to be with our plan? Because around this time of year, you'll have lots of chefs on, you know, introducing some new fancy elements. Do you need to go to that level of, of detail and, um, and uh, you know, mm. kind of up your game yeah. on Christmas Day? Yeah, you can. You can up your game on Christmas Day. I'm not saying anybody is limited. But remember that when people are cooking on television, they have a whole staff in the kitchen. There are people behind that have created the recipes and it takes them three days to cook that menu. At least three days to cook. Just maybe even, you know, just the the Christmas lunch part. It could take them that long. So don't be fooled and drawn into something um, and over, you know, acknowledge your own skill level acknowledge what your what your resources are how big is your oven how big how many people are you cooking for have you ever cooked before have you ever cooked a turkey before you know plan and your detail your your planning does need to be detailed as a result of that because your timing people get into a tizzy when it comes to the serving whereas you know if you can try keep it mellow and if you have everything planned so have your table set the night before or have it in your head organised what is actually going to be on the table what it's going to look like it might sound a little bit silly but if you have all of those things put to one side you're not faffing in the kitchen on Christmas Day trying to serve a turkey as well as trying to find the plates and give people jobs would you say as well oh dole out the jobs Claire tell everybody and um, you know I have a friend who when he's when he's doing um, dinner parties he'll give somebody a nudge and he'll say you'll you'll help me with the starter and he'll tell somebody else you're helping me with the main course but equally have somebody who might be organising and entertaining like maybe there might be a little few nibbles beforehand like crisps and nuts and drinks have somebody organised for that that that's their job and they make sure everybody's glass is you know that they get a drink and that they're topped up have somebody else acknowledge and make sure they do the jobs have somebody who's going to be inside in the kitchen giving a hand because it is it can depending on the numbers it can be quite a, a production and equally who's going to be doing the washing up because you don't want to have the argument afterwards and if somebody's <laughs> going to do it let them at it and Claire asked Agnes about the giblets but giblets no. for some of us now are a mystery thing that we don't like to think too much about well people don't really think about the entrails of a turkey when no they're not cooking. very often no no but they do make a lovely stock Claire so if you are a person who gets the giblets and sometimes they can be in the cavity of the turkey and sometimes they're in plastic if it's a fresh turkey they might just be laid inside in paper but make sure check the inside of your turkey before you put your turkey into the oven to take out the giblets but what what we would do is we would take the giblets and the night before and make them into a stock so a little bit of onion carrot celery put the giblets into a pan 
allow that to make a stock and then the dog our dog Christmas Day is the giblets that they they will get for, for their lunch <laughs> Christmas uh, you know, dinner Christmas dinner a little bit of something different but it is a way you know and that gives a lovely stock and a lovely flavour to your gravy then when you use that with maybe some carrot water you don't have to use all of it but you can use you know that will actually add flavour and depth of flavour as well but equally it means that you won't cook the giblets inside in the turkey cavity okay. Some uh, questions coming in for you mm-hmm. Agnes mm. Can you ask how long it is safe to keep a cooked properly cooked turkey in the fridge for over Christmas? Mm. Well, as long as the turkey has been cooled down within two hours, I would say you get about four days out of it. But to be honest, look up safefood.eu. They have a fabulous website when it comes to food safety mm-hmm. and it's very easy to navigate as well. And they will have lots of health and food safety tips. Yeah, you'd be sick that. of it anyway after well, three or four days. The thing is I turned it into see a turkey again. By after St. Stephen's Day, the day after St. Stephen's Day, I would have it turned into a turkey curry. Yes. Because you've had enough of the turkey at that stage because you may have had one or two lunches of it prior to Christmas for, you know, if you were out. Um, So turn it into a turkey curry and freeze it and it's gone out of the way. Also, it's not taking up that room in your freezer, in your fridge as well, because you've broken down. Mm -hmm. And then there's always the dog. The do- now don't overfeed the dog at Christmas either. I know all the vets and the, the animal people got to be saying yeah. don't give the turkey to the dog and don't give the turkey carcass to the dog no don't do that no don't no. give them bones no. I'm, I'm fully on board with yeah. that one uh, Elaine emailed us this morning mm-hmm. Agnes she said she read a tip about slow baking the Christmas ham overnight in the oven at a low temperature for 8 or 9 hours she'd love to try this mm. because she doesn't like the smell of boiled ham at all yeah. what temperatures and timing would Elaine need to factor in for this okay well this is um, now uh, my first advice piece of advice to Elaine is Elaine, try this first before you actually produce it on Christmas Day. Try it, get a smaller piece of ham and in the lead up to Christmas, try it and try it and see what the recipe is like um, to make sure that you like it. So um, you would start out when you put your oven up to about 250 degrees, good high um, oven. um, And then you will put, you will um, get your your ham and you will put it like basically you'll wrap the ham in tin foil, but you'll wrap it loosely, kind of like en papillette. So you make kind of an envelope and you put the ham in and you can put flavourings in as well. You might use treacle, you might use some honey, some, you know, you might have some veg on the bottom as a trivet. So you'd make basically a big massive tin foil envelope. You'll have your ham in there. You might put in a small little bit of um, liquid like um, cider or uh, some people might use Coca-Cola, you know, different things because the sweetness of the Coke and the saltiness will be quite nice. So then close that over, put it onto a, a, on, on, a, on a, a wire rack in a baking tray into the oven and for 30 minutes you'd have it at about 250 degrees and then 100 degrees you would cook it for 12 to 24 hours then you take it out of the oven and then uh, allow it to you you can then put it to 200 degrees with the glaze on it just so you get the nice glaze look on top mm-hmm. but equally like that's an awful long time Claire um, 12 to 24 hours I would I, I, I would you'd need to have your thermometer you'd need to have your food safety hat on so you can equally put it into an oven um, for five hours at about 180 degrees and but you need to make sure that it's cooled down within two hours and in the fridge if you're not serving it until the following day. So that's very important. And it's about 100, if you're doing the 180, it's about 25 to 30 minutes per kg. Agnes Boucher Hayes from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line, after a caller told Joe about her mother being spat at by another motorist yesterday, it started a number of calls from female drivers who also experienced aggression on the roads. Catherine called in the afternoon to tell Joe her shocking story. A man with three small children in his car, he parked halfway across the um, disability parking okay, space. Okay. So 
I went up to him and I said, please, I wonder, could you just straighten up your car a bit that I could get my car into the disability? Okay. Next thing, he stood out of the car right in front of me. He shouted everything under the sun at me and then he spat in my face. My God. Now, all I can remember is the three, the expression of the three small children in the car. And there were people around because they could hear him shouting and roaring. And nobody came to my help. No. So then when I said, please, will you just straighten it up? And then he threatened me. He said, I'm going to reverse back into your car. I'm going to smash up your car. So I pulled out my phone and said, OK, do that. And I'm going to phone the guards. Mm. So then he got in the car and he cooled off and he took off. And what age were the children? I'd say the eldest was about five, between five and six, maybe a little three-year-old. We presume, we presume he was the father. This is three young children yes. looking at her father, spitting into someone else's face. Yes, My yes. God. and shouting at the top of his voice. And did you ring the guards, Catherine? I didn't, actually. No, because, I didn't. Because the guards were in contact with us yesterday after the programme saying they are taking any case of spitting in the current circumstances very seriously. He's not Very. the first person I've seen spitting, to be honest with you. But spitting think, into someone else's face? Yeah, right into my face. Yes, it landed all over my face. Oh. oh. Mm, I know. But I just think we've lost an awful lot in this country. Manners, everything seems to be just gone. People park in places they shouldn't. They park on the yellow boxes. You know, it's just dreadful. Nobody seems to have any care for anybody else but themselves today. Well that's Catherine. Then Caroline called with her story of aggression on the roads. And yes I was driving through Drogheda town um, in October and I was at a particular junction in a filter lane turning left and I'd indicated and turned into the left filter lane and as I came up to the traffic lights there was a truck still in the lane for going straight but Mm -hmm. he was indicating to turn left. Now the lights were red and there was also an additional car in front of me and I didn't think anything of it. And I saw this gentleman appearing from around the side of the truck. Mm-hmm. And I ran down my window. I thought actually he was, you know, needing assistance. Yeah, and then yeah. he started screaming, his shouting, his arms were flaring. And I'm looking at him. He walked right by the guy in the car in front of me mm-hmm. and straight for me in the smaller car, being a female, and then told me I had to reverse back which I couldn't because there was another car turning left behind yeah, me. Yeah. And then I said, I, I'm looking at him going a little bit confused, wound up my window because at that stage I'm kind of making sure my car was locked. And um, he then screamed at me telling me he would weaponize his go. truck and that if I tried to turn left before him that he would drive over me and kill me. Oh, God. But he didn't, so he, that was he didn't use that phrase, I will weaponize my truck. Uh, basically, he said, my truck is much bigger than yours. Okay. I will drive wow. over you. That's what he said. Because I'm in a small car. I mean, it's a, yeah. a little, small, little kind of okay, Volkswagen so, Polo. So yeah. what happened next? So I phoned the police. I got home and I phoned the police. There's a general number that you can actually call regarding traffic incidences. Okay. And they told me, I told, gave them all the details. And they told me that they would get in contact with me. So a month later, they got in contact with me. I think it might have been um, a local police branch. I don't know. I actually okay. genuinely don't know. But they contacted me and they did 
everything to dissuade me from taking it further. So they said you'd have to come down to the police station and make mm-hmm. a statement. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm fine with that. Well uh, done, well done. We might go to court. I said, I'm fine with that. I said, this man is a menace. Yeah. Because he walked by a guy. He obviously felt I was an easier target. Um, and he felt it was, you know, his right, even though he was incorrectly in the lane, he felt it was his right to actually, you know, bypass every other driver that was doing the correct thing, being in the correct lane. Um, but yes, he felt it was um, his, his right to actually intimidate a female driver. And I felt this should be taken further. So this happened on the 15th of October last. Uh, correct. We're, we're now uh, coming into the middle of December, to say the least. Uh, what has happened since? Absolutely nothing. They told me they would get back to me and they would arrange for my statement to be read and absolutely nothing now. I was told they'd get back to me by the 24th of November. I'm sure it's the 24th of December in two, two weeks exactly, from today. Exactly, exactly. And then another Caroline called Joe. I was coming from a supermarket and stopped at a red light in Drogheda on the northern side of Drogheda on um, the old Dundalk Road. People would know it there near yeah. the Lord's Hospital. And I was turning right and the um, traffic lights went red. So I was the only one there and it had just rained, funny enough. And so there were no walkers, joggers or anything because it's a very, very nice okay. place for walking and jogging. So on my own and another car lights came up behind me, thought nothing of it. Then the passenger door opened, a guy stuck his head in, grabbed my bag and ran. I said, oh, my God. So mm-hmm. I unbuckled myself, hopped out. He was getting into a car behind. So there was a second man there the driver who had come up behind me had turned the car and was ready to go back down the way they'd come. And so this guy hopped in. So um, I happened to be sitting on my phone. I don't tend to leave my phone in my bag and the phone was there. So I immediately took photographs of the car. Well done. Well done. So it was an automatic reaction, you know, protect your property. Then I was afraid there might be a third person there. Yeah. who was going to steal my car. Now, not that it's worth very much. I'm very like the other Caroline was a little yeah. small car, but it was my daughter's car because mine was doing the NCT the next day and she was cleaning it for me, mine. So um, there was no central locking no or no automatic locking. It was an old Yaris. So I would never think of put, putting down all of the, the safety buttons, you know, the locking yeah, buttons yeah, central locking because it, yeah. my, yeah. Own car, my own car locks anyway. So my goodness, this is what happened. So I... Oh, my God, I got an awful fright. I was screaming, uh, you know, and I rang 999 there and they were very, 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 very nice. They talked me down from where I was and they said, wait and we'll get guards. I said, absolutely not. I know I'm only down the road from the station. Got down to the station. Uh, Oh, the guardy down there were absolutely amazing. And I was shaking like a leaf when I went in and they told me when I was leaving that they were watching me on CCTV and didn't know what was wrong with me. But they took my uh, took my statement and were very good. And they gave me a glass of water, but I was shaking so much. It was going over one. So do you reckon, Caroline, I reckon I was followed. Okay. I reckon I was followed because um, I have to use the key to get into the car. So therefore, I didn't have the central locking mechanism. And I just threw my, you know, shopping into the mm-hmm. back seat, bag into the front seat. And I think they were probably waiting at that supermarket to see what they can see. It was not an opportunistic crime because well, it was most planned because they had their getaway car. They had yeah. their getaway car parked in the opposite direction, so they sped off. Yes, back, back, yes. Uh, uh, back not in front of you, but behind you, so to speak. But yes, in the, in they the pulled fo- up behind me and turned. In the photograph, did you, is there a reg number visible? Do you know? Yes, wow. yes, the reg number is visible, uh, more or less, and the 
make and colour of the car is visible. Also, when they were getting into the car, the second guy, the guy who robbed me, the light comes on in the car, so I was able to describe them as well. Well done. Um, well done. But, but there is a good side to this. Now, well, the guard the way, was the, fantastic. The, the, sorry, the bad side is yeah. your handbag is gone. Bloody handbag was gone. With everything with, in it, know, I presume. Cards. cards. Okay, everything yeah, yeah. in it, everything in it except my phone, thank God, because I was able to ring somebody right away. Yeah. So don't keep your phone and cards together or phone and bag. Actually, somebody since then has told me they put the bag in under their legs, under the driver's seat. Now, I mm. would be afraid of things rolling out, even yeah, a pen rolling out might affect you. That, so, you know, yeah. So the, the guards followed up. The victim support group rang me the next day from the Garda in Dunleer absolutely fabulous and then I kept in contact with the guards to see what was happening and and uh, some man had found a motorway maintenance worker had found my bag on the motorway going to Dublin a day or two later and handed it into the guards in in um, Balbriggan so oh, they yeah. have to keep that um, bag for evidence etc but at least I'll have my driving licence and don't have to start oh, reissuing yeah, yeah, those absolutely but I have to say they were fantastic the guards for me were fantastic but okay, I don't story. know what they're going to do how to progress it but be careful of what you do with your bag and lock your doors that's Caroline on the live line with Joe Duffy And in the morning, Ryan Tuberty was talking to Valerie, who was a bit emotional after Ryan played a clip of Hillary Clinton's acceptance speech for the American presidency that never was. And she wanted to talk about the hope chests and decluttering. And in 1987, you got the job. I got the job, yes. And as what? <laughs> A bank manager, a corporate bank manager. Well, the reason I say that is because, <laughs> you know, for you, for particularly for younger listeners, um, you know, this, this was your Hillary Clinton moment in some ways. Yeah, it was, I suppose, to some extent. It was, Tell, yeah. me, tell me about it. I mean, in terms of, of what your, your, your apprehension going for the job or your thoughts in achieving this. Well, it's funny you should say that. I was, that's why decluttering the attic and finding all these bits and pieces yes, yes. brought an awful lot of it back. And um, probably the thing that most sort of, sorry, I'm just out of breath at the moment. That's okay, um, yes. You're a woman on the run. Sort of, no, the, the, what really sort of hit me was how the world has changed. Because I was, you know, I came out of college. Yeah. I had ambitions. I had a great dad who always used to say to us as kids, you know, don't be a nurse, be a doctor. Okay. And coming into the working world, I saw that there was no reason why I shouldn't be as equal to a man. And when I applied for the job, I did all my preparation and I felt absolutely able and capable of getting that job. And I did. So it was just more the reading material that made me laugh when I actually read it. I sort of said, I cannot believe that people thought like that about women. This is, okay. let's go to your attic then. Um, uh, You're doing doing clear out there? Is that what's happening? That's it. And it's funny, that's really, I would never normally shoot off an email but sure. I had the daunting task of um, replacing uh, um, tanks in the attic oh. and um, I thought okay this is an opportunity I said to the guys if you bring everything down to the landing and I left this small space because I had no idea what was up there Yes. and lo and behold it kept coming and coming <laughs> and it was like raining you know sort of N- I, nostalgia gunk. yeah and yeah. nostalgia but a lot of junk as well yeah and it filled an entire bedroom. And I thought, how am I ever going to get through this? 
so at the start, it was taking very long and the pile didn't look like it was moving at all. Yeah. And then I became quite ruthless. I went off to home base. I got four um, big sort of uh, plastic containers, hope chests is what I like to call them, one for each of the kids and one for myself and my husband. Okay. And I just put in what I thought might be of value. And then I continued to fill 30 plus large black refuse sacks. With what? Rubbish or... Rubbish, or... you know what? Bits like, uh, I was trying to think what I had, letters that like, do I really care? And do I want to keep letters from people that go back, you know, 50, 60, 50 years? Yeah. 40 years? Yeah. I read them and I kept one or two of them. Okay. Um, things like programs from sports events. Um... Uh, didn't throw away any books because it didn't keep books in the attic just in case they got sort of messed up. Keep those downstairs. So school copy books and all those bits and pieces that you accumulate for kids over the years and think, oh, they love that when they get a bit older. Mm. And of course, they never really want to see it again. So I felt I'd take out selectively what they'd like to see. Um, and I think that's worked. And we're going to have a memory day over the Christmas. Oh. And they're each going to open their box. And we're going to have a laugh with what I've put in it. And then we're going to reduce it further, hopefully, on the basis that they'll say, I don't want that. You've become vicious and cold. Absolutely. I admire you. <laughs> well done, Valerie. Ruthless. Um, ruthless is a great word. Did, uh, did the charity shops benefit from your ruthlessness? Did what, sorry? Charity shops. Well, what I did was I took away, um, I took aside stuff that I felt I could recycle in terms of giving them to charity shops, okay. like toys, like really good toys that I'd put away. So they've gone into a separate um, area. And then I gave some, I said to the guys, if they have young children, can they take stuff away that they might like? And I have clothes, like beautiful baby clothes, and they're in bags and they're going to the charity shop. And Ryan asked Valerie about some of those things she found in her attic. Overcoming the negatives of being trained as a woman. Yes. What, what is this document? Which document? The, the, the overcoming the negatives of being I don't know. I found it as part of mad. the pile to prepare for an interview. And I just thought, can you believe somebody actually sat down and wrote that stuff? It says you need to stop waiting to be chosen, <laughs> invited, persuaded, asked to accept a promotion. Start acting. Let people know you want exactly. uh, what you want and what you're prepared to get. You need to stop waiting to be told what to do. Right. Take the initiative. Ask to learn new skills. Ask to be given a new assignment. Ask, underlined, to take on new projects. You need to stop being afraid to take risks. If you're afraid of risks, ask yourself, why? Do you see risks only as losing propositions? or as I know. Pro- it is brilliant. Uh, and this is just, this, this is a document of encouragement. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I suppose it was more or less to tell you you're not equal, but if you want to try and sort of fake it, you need to sort of demonstrate these skills is the way I read it. Wow. Um, but there was one other thing I should mention at the time, and we talk about pensions and, you know, rights, and I have a daughter, and I'm sure I think you have a daughter as well. Yeah, too, yeah. Um, when I had gone into the role, I didn't get the same pension as a man in that role really? at the time. And um, I had a great letter which I hand-wrote to the managing director explaining that I thought this was sexist and it wasn't acceptable and that I would like to be compensated for the differential between my pension contribution from the bank um, to that given to a man. But I can't remember. I didn't get the follow-up note. Did it actually happen? I think I don't remember if it did. Why did Hillary Clinton's speech clip yesterday prompt... What prompted me was, I just thought, 
you know, what she had to do to get there. Not that I feel, you know, I had, uh, I came from a very good home mm-hmm. and I had really good parents who encouraged me, as I said, all the time. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was a spirit. I just love that fighting spirit and that spirit of, you know, I can do this. Um, um, I will achieve. And just to hear her words, and I suppose at the time when Trump got elected, when you saw what America could have had, yeah. it just really resonated with me. I always say... And I suppose you see that in every aspect. Well, of you do. Well. We're talking about a lot of what-ifs today and, and you know, having had the pleasure of meeting Hillary Clinton a couple of times and interviewing her, I, I keep coming away, I, I, both times, uh, and then even on the radio from re- remotely, I always come away thinking, if only the people had seen mm. that version of her, mm. the mm. one that they that campaigned to be president was very at odds with the person that you hear now after the event, a much yeah. warmer, funnier, emotional person. Um, unfortunately, they, they, they sold the wrong candidate. And, and now, here, if, if that's your politics, that's the, that is to say, I should say. But anyway, you, went to, you got the job as bank manager. Did you have a great career? I did. I feel um, I had, yeah, a really good career. Enjoyed it immensely. Met fabulous people. And I have to be honest, never felt discriminated against. Okay. Well, that's a positive. Oh, I feel good in that respect. Um, And also, funny, having worked in banking and then when the financial crash happened, Mm. I went and helped with restructuring banks. So I, I feel I've had a really good career. And since last year... I've sort of stepped back a little bit, mm-hmm. um, hence doing all the things that I suppose I haven't done for years, like sorting out the house. Yeah, you, uh, you're, I'm getting uh, that envy. I have an attic full of absolute junk. I'm, oh, I'm going to take a leaf out of your book, Valerie, and do the same. Yeah, And do the hope chest, though. I will. That sounds really nice. I think memory yeah. day sounds beautiful as well. Yeah, and we're going to have a memory day, and I'm going to put a box for each of them on the table. Now, they'll probably all get bored after about an hour. No, no, no. No, no, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's, it's really, uh, it's kind of like a rabbit hole but like rather than it I, is you know, you know the way you yeah. pick up something and then you pick up something else yes exactly and, um, and one other thing as well my husband has a lot of stuff and I have as well I suppose not as much from his parents okay like um, diaries and notes and cine rolls from his oh lovely parents. okay so there's a lot of stuff there that I've kept which you know we will enjoy now that it's no longer in the attic yeah but you couldn't possibly, as I said, you know, you have to be ruthless because if I had two more lifetimes, I would not have got through reading and, you know, looking at everything that was in that attic. That's Valerie on the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, extolling the virtues of Formula One racing, Carl Mullen was talking to Claire in the morning. I know that you're mad into Formula One and you've been following this year in, year out, but lots of people haven't because it hasn't been that exciting. Yeah. Suddenly it's exciting again. Will you explain why? Well, I think this is, Formula One needed this. They really, really needed a big rivalry like this. And there's a couple of things going on for Formula One. There's the drive to survive effect of the Netflix series, which has really drawn audiences to Formula One that Mm -hmm. have never been there before. And it's given people an interest in, you know, things other than drivers crashing into each other or, you know, an interest interest in the politics of the teams and all those other things but what it really needed was a rivalry like this there hasn't been a rivalry like this I think in the time since I've started watching Formula One I mean I've watched it since 1998 there's a couple of moments where you might say Michael Schumacher and Mika Hakkinen but this is 
there's bad blood here and there's been and, so and, many And incidents. it's real, it's not a creation, would you say? I really don't think so. I, because at the start of the season, Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen, they'd never really had the opportunity to race against each other in the way that they have this season because Max Verstappen just never had the machinery to do it. And as the season has gone on, the body language has changed. The amount of incidents on track have gone up. They don't give each other an inch because they can't afford to. It's... This is, it's a serious rivalry. And it's not just, ooh, I touched off my car and I'm not happy about that. These are very serious things have happened over the course of of this season. Will you take us through some of the the major incidents? Yeah, and I mean, look, I mean, if there's there's fanatical Formula One fans listening, I'm sure there's going to be so many things I'm going to miss out on here, but like we could be here for an hour Listen, I want you to give me the novice's guide to the season. That's what I'm looking for. I suppose this season is a tale of a couple of things. It's been a tale of probably bad luck for Max Verstappen on a couple of occasions and a tale of Lewis Hamilton probably feeling slightly aggrieved at Max's driving style. Max is a very aggressive driver and does not give Lewis Hamilton anything because he knows he can't afford to because Lewis Hamilton is a seven-time world champion. He is really, really good at what he does. Um, I suppose in terms of the bad luck for Max, there's been a couple of times during the season, uh, say the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, he was five laps from the end of the race and he had a tyre blowout and didn't finish that race. So that was a, a golden opportunity for Lewis to kind of pick up some points. Now, Lewis ended up making a, a mistake in that race himself. So it was a bit of a let off for Max Verstappen. Um, there was another case where uh, Max Verstappen got taken out by Lewis's teammate, uh, Valtteri Bottas. So that was another kind of stroke of luck for Lewis, but bad luck for Max. Then when we come to incidents between the, the two, the two of, them, of them, yeah, the big flashpoint, the first big flashpoint of the season was at the Silverstone at the British Grand Prix. And there's a, a famous corner uh, called Cops and it is 200 miles an hour. It is as dangerous as it gets. And Lewis went to overtake Max for the lead of the race on the first lap. And Lewis hit Max and Max had a like a really a horrendous accident. I mean, it was he was very lucky to, to walk away from it. He ended up like having to be brought to hospital um, to be checked out. Lewis went on to win the race and Max felt quite aggrieved at the fact that Lewis celebrated in the, the way he did because Max was in hospital. So that's where I think the, the real bad blood started between both Max and Lewis and the teams. And then there was another collision then, wasn't there, in at the Italian Grand Prix? Yes, so probably the iconic image I think of this season will be this. And it is literally Max's car sitting on Lewis Hamilton's head. And I'm, I'm actually not over-exaggerating that. I don't know why I'm smiling, because I could have been very, very serious, but it, it's just the, the image of it, yeah. He, he was he was very lucky. I mean, they brought in a device a couple of years ago called the Halo, and they reckon it could have genuinely saved Lewis Hamilton. It was, it was an amazing incident in some ways. But again, an incident that came from neither driver wanting to give each other an inch, and it ended up in the way it did. So what's your prediction then for the weekend? I... My heart, I would like Lewis to win it. Uh, I'm going to put my hands up. I think we're witnessing something very special in Lewis Hamilton. There's also something very special in Max, but I would like Lewis to win it. I think either Max is going to win it or we're going to see fireworks and a crash between the two of them, which means Max wins it anyway. And where can we see it? Uh, so Channel 4 have done a deal with Sky, so it'll be free to air on Channel 4 live. Um, if you have Channel 4 or if you have Sky, you can watch it there. It's one o'clock on Sunday. Uh, Great. So it, it'll be fireworks. Might even watch it myself. Carl Mullen from Today with Claire Byrne. 
and on Morning Ireland. How worried are Irish people when it comes to climate change? 85% of Irish people are worried about climate change and four out of five think it should be a priority for the government. Those are among the findings of an extensive survey carried out for the Environmental Protection Agency and a Yale University programme on climate change. Sharon Finnegan, who's director of the EPA's Office of Environmental Sustainability, joins us. Good morning. Good morning, Rachel. This is a very large study. How many people did you speak to? Yes, this is the first study of its kind to be undertaken in Ireland, as you say, using um, partnering with Yale, using their internationally recognised methodology. And it's based on a nationally representative survey of more than 4,000 people, which we took during the summer of 2021. So a very large sample and very comprehensive, very methodologically robust. And it's the first report from a wider project which the EPA is undertaking which is really helping us to develop a better understanding of the Irish population by understanding I suppose climate change beliefs, risk perceptions, policy preferences and I suppose the behaviour of the Irish people around climate change and the whole point of this is the EPA undertook it I suppose in recognition of the scale and the urgency of climate change and also the fact that really climate change has risen very sharply in people's consciousness and we're trying to figure out the messages are often complicated and conflicting and we really want to be able to deliver a sound evidence base on how to target citizen engagement and communication. That's the purpose of the study. Now as I was saying at the start the survey shows that Irish people do believe that climate change is real but what do they think should be done to tackle the problem? Yeah so I mean really quite emphatic results around people's Um, beliefs around climate change. So as you said at the outset, almost full agreement that climate change is happening, 96%, which is is very high compared to other international benchmarks, like 76% is the figure in the USA. 85% are worried about it. 91% of people say that it's important to them personally. And 79% say that climate change should be either a high or a very high priority for government. And I suppose that shows that people overwhelmingly recognise the threat. They really accept the findings of climate science and they really support a a whole of society response. And some of those responses that we asked them about and the levels of support that we're seeing, very high levels of support um, for policies like increased investment in public transport, 92% of respondents in favour of that, making EVs more affordable, 92%, and providing grants for for energy efficiency, very high levels of support. There are also um, majority support for other um, uh, policy measures like banning peat, coal and oil for home heating, 68% of people in favour of that, and higher taxes on cars that use petrol and diesel. Sharon Finnegan from Morning Ireland. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.